Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. I'm glad that you've come here. A little bit about the flow of what we'll be doing, and then we'll get into the content. Um, I will begin our official kind of teaching time at 6.40 each Wednesday night. Uh, And that way, those of you who are coming from work can either, you know, get here at 6.30 and have some time to breathe a little bit, uh, or you don't have to worry about missing it. And especially uh, also those of you who are dropping off your children, you can arrive, you know, um, at a normal time, get your kids in and come in here. So if you get in here earlier, that's great. That'd be me. Um, Either sit down and don't talk to anybody if that's what you'd prefer to do um, and just, you know, have some introvert time or, you know, talk to the people around you if that is, uh, is that is what will best equip you to learn. And we'll, I'll basically teach for an hour. I I don't want to talk for much more than that. Uh, I don't like to listen to myself for even that long, so I can't imagine that you want to listen much longer. So I'll aim to begin about 6.40 and end at 7.40 or at least by 7.45. And that's with a couple of things in mind. Again, that's with the kids in mind. That way you can go get the kiddos and uh, get them out of there at a decent time. But also, um, I want to, I'll, I'll stick around up here for a little while um, I can't stay all night, but I'll stay up here for, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so. If any of you want to come engage and, and talk and dialogue that way, if you want to talk to me uh, in a little bit more length about some of the things that come up over the course of this semester, let me know because as part of my role here, I can uh, set up a meeting with you on a Sunday morning. We can sit over in the coffee uh, cafe area and uh, chat about whatever it is that you think would be beneficial for you. So that's just a little bit about the the um, time of what we'll be doing together. One more note on the feel of this. I want it to be somewhat informal if possible. I know that's challenging given that I'm five feet above you right now currently um, and I have a microphone on. So I get that maybe this isn't the normal setting in which you would talk back to somebody, but I'm not preaching when, I, when we come here tonight. I'm teaching and for me there is a difference there. I, I want to instruct you and certainly that means I'll probably say most of the words, but I want you to feel the freedom to ask questions if, you, as, if and as you have them. Um, because of the setting, I'll try to stop occasionally through our time and ask if there are any questions and we'll take them in that way. If you just are shy and there's no way that you're going to ask in a room this size, or if you'd like to sit towards the back and you don't want to yell at us, uh, we still have a phone number that you can call or that you can text your questions into. I'll tell you what it is now and towards the end, we'll, we'll toss it up on the screen. But if you want to write this down in case you have a question, the text line is 417 417- Two zero four nine four seven eight. So uh, that is, uh-oh, I don't know the passcode to this iPad. Brad, you want to text me that? And then I'll unlock this and write it. Oh, you got that slide up there. Perfect. That's better than my writing would be. Oh, 208, is that the number? I wrote down the wrong one. We'll go with that one. 417-208-9478 is the number. So if you have a question and you want to text it in, um, you can do that at any time, and I'll try to save some time for that at the end. Okay, enough logistics. Uh, let me talk a little bit about who I am and what I'm doing here, and let me thank you for being here and praying, and we'll get started. Uh, if, you, if we don't know each other, my name is Michael DeFazio, and I recently joined the team officially here as a part-time teaching pastor at Christ Church, and I'm certainly a, joy, a lot of joy for me in being part of the team. And my full-time job is as a professor at Ozark Christian College down in Joplin. So um, by vocation, currently I train up young men and women and send them out for Christian service. And before that, I was on staff at a church in California for eight years as part of the pastoral team. And so I love the church. I love, uh, I love working with 18 to 22-year-olds. Otherwise, I wouldn't do what I do. But I also like to get around people who are a little bit older than 22. So I look forward to our times together. This is not actually material that I've ever taught at the college. This is fresh material, which is good for a number of reasons. One, it's fresh for me too. And two, I didn't write it for college students. I wrote it for adults, which uh, I think there's some, certainly some differences in terms of approach there. So this is things that I will be pulling together and sharing with you about the church. And as we begin, I just want to say thank you. Um, I know what it's like to not have to be at church. Um, I spent much of my adult life on staff at a church, and then I transitioned to a situation where it's like, oh, I get to choose a church? What does that even mean? And then I get to choose how much I participate? This is awesome. (laughs) So, um, and uh, I know that you are making sacrifices by being here. So thank you. 
I know that you probably did uh, any number of exhausting things today, whether it was chasing children around a room, somebody else's or your own, or working in a hospital or working in a factory, working in a cubicle or telling other people what to do or being told what to do, whatever it is, you've got a lot going on in your lives. And I want to honor that by uh, the way I lead our time. And I want to begin, and you'll hear me say this a number of times. I mean it every time I say it. I'm not just trying to be nice or sort of puff you up or get you to think that you should listen to me. I'm thankful to see that you are interested in learning about these things. And uh, my promise to you is that I will, I will honor, your, honor your commitment in that regard as much as I can. Let me pray, and then, uh, and then we'll start our conversations uh, together. Now, Father God, we stand in your presence. And this is, this is a room in which many of us have gotten to know you uh, more, gotten to know you better. This is a room for us that represents what... Um, some of, the, some of your followers in the past used to call thin places, places where it feels like the line between heaven and earth is uh, thinner than elsewhere. We know this to be true, that your spirit is with us when we gather as people in your name, and that ultimately the room we're in has little to nothing to do with that. And so we're grateful for this particular place. But more so, God, we're grateful for each other and for the way in which you inhabit our praise and our brokenness and our attempts to understand and say something true about you. So as we gather over the course of the next few months and talk specifically about what it means to be us, um, as we have these kind of family meetings, I pray that you would be our primary teacher and that I could serve as some sort of a mouthpiece in that regard that I could serve as some sort of a a brother who has talked to dad about things and is now going to share some of what you've said. And I just pray that we could engage this with a spirit of listening. And also as we talk about the church, which for many of us represents deep joy and for others represents deep pain or frustration, I pray God that you would enable us to listen with our, our minds and hearts together. So uh, help us to focus, help us to uh, be diligent, and help us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if there is one thing all of us in this room have in common, other than the fact that we're human beings, so far as I can tell, looking at you from up here, that is that we have some sort of connection uh, to church. For some of you, the relationship you have to church may be fairly new. Perhaps you're just getting to church for the first time or just getting back in church. Um, Given the topic that we're talking about, maybe you talk about how you hate the church and you have a friend or a neighbor that's like, oh yeah, come find out what it is. And they brought you here. Who knows? Uh, Some of you may have just begun engaging this process. Others of you have probably been around for a while, if not here, then then, then somewhere else. I'd imagine there's a decent amount of people in the room who, if you told your faith story, if you told your testimony... It would begin with something like this. I was born in a pew. And of course, in that moment, we all hope it's a metaphor (laughs) because that'd be really weird. So many of you grew up in church and you're continuing a tradition that was handed to you or maybe you started going to church a long time ago and you've continued along that path. And to some degree, you're engaging church as an insider. Uh, You're engaging church as one who has said, I'm here and I'm in. I'm here and I want to plug in, serve, be part of what's going on. Still others may have been coming for a short time or a long time, but still kind of be keeping things at an arm's distance. I'm not quite sure about you you people. I'm not quite sure if this is something that I want to give myself to. As I said in the prayer, for some of us, church carries connotations of joy and life and stability, and they were there for me when I needed them most, and they told me the truth in such ways that have changed me forever. And yet for others of you, church, even though you're here, for for others of you, church may represent some degree of confusion or anxiety or, or even conflict. And this can be true of all of us. It's not just true of those that just come to church. Trust me, it's true of every single person that's ever stepped foot in the church. I heard one time about a, this is a true story, I believe, this guy named Henry Jones uh, woke up one sunny Sunday morning, and as soon as he woke up, he realized that his wife was standing over him, shaking his shoulders, and she says, you need to wake up. It's time to go to church. And he says, I don't want to go to church. She says, you have to go. And he says, give me three good reasons why I should go. Or uh, she says, uh, yeah, he says, give me, uh, she says, sorry, she says, give me three good reasons why you shouldn't go to church. And he says, well, first of all, I don't get anything out of the services. Secondly, I don't like anybody there. And thirdly, none of them like me. So there. And Lita looks at her and says, now give me three reasons why I should go. And she says, first of all, if you pay close enough attention, you can even learn from a bad sermon. Secondly, the people aren't that bad. And thirdly, you're the preacher. <laughs> So get out of bed and go to church. By the way, I promise I'll probably tell that same joke in two weeks when I preach. So you can pretend you've never heard it and laugh really loud for me. 
That's the reality though. I mean, even those of us who have taken our paycheck from the church for a time, gratefully so, still sometimes wrestle with what it means to be connected to the church. Some of us love it, others of us tolerate it. But the point is, we're all here, at least tonight. And that raises the question, where are we? What are we? Who are we? Well, church, we say, but what is that? I was looking up quotes on church recently, and I found one from a man you may have heard of named John Wesley. Here's what he says about church. He says, a more ambiguous word than church is scarce to be found in the English language. I think that's probably true. What he's saying there is there's lots of words that confuse us, but if church is said to 10 people, you probably have about 12 different opinions about how that word ought to be defined. It's not a word that defines itself, so that's our question. What is the church? That's the question that we're going to be attempting to answer all semester long. We're going to stay pretty laser focused on this one question. We're going to talk about it from a number of different angles. Everything I say is designed to revolve around and at some level answer this question, what is the church? And for whatever reason, when I thought about tonight and how it would be best to kick things off, the image that came to mind for me was like renovating a home. And maybe like my wife's favorite channel has gotten into my bloodstream. I'm not exactly sure why this is the case. Uh, But it's what came to mind for me. And so I thought about what you do when you renovate a home. And I've kind of framed up what we're going to be doing today as the beginning stages of that process. And so first of all, we're going to clear the cobwebs. uh, Then we're going to check the foundation. And then we're going to clarify the plan. That, at the end of the day, is, I think, how you would probably renovate a home, or if you want a picture, going up into your attic and deciding to do something else with it. What do you got to do? First of all, you got to clear the cobwebs, because you don't want the spiders to bite you. You know what I mean? You got to clear the debris and get the stuff out of there. And then, after you clear the debris, you got to check the foundation and make sure that this is is stable for whatever it is you want to do there. And then, if the foundation is secure, you formulate and clarify the plan and then get to work. So, right now, what we're going to do is prepare ourselves to get to work starting next week and then on through uh, the rest of our time together over the next few months. So let's try to clear the cobwebs in our minds when it comes to church. I mean, on the one hand, it seems like a pretty simple question. If I walked into your workplace and you work at a marketing firm and I say, what is a marketing firm? I'd imagine most of the people can offer a definition. If I walked into your uh, place of employment and you work at a school and I said, what is a school? I would imagine most of the people there, probably those who work there and those who are attending there as students could answer the question. And maybe the same is true with church. I don't really know. So I want to give you an opportunity now just to do a little bit of reflection. And let me point out now that on your way in, uh, if you didn't see them, there are uh, notebooks out front. I'd imagine most of you got them. And in that, you'll have handouts for you that will cover the things we talk about. If you're not a handout person, it's not going to hurt my feelings. But I'll always provide these for you for those of you who do like to follow along and take notes and that kind of thing. So you'll notice there in this next section, I've given you some space. And I just have the question, when I say church, you think what? And here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you probably three or four minutes for this. And I want you to write a few words that come to mind when you think about church. If you would humor me, I want you to draw a picture. I'm not going to make every, make you show it to everybody. This is not like show and tell. We're going to embarrass each other at our bad artistic abilities. If it makes you feel better, maybe I'll try to write a picture up here and it'll be worse than all yours. So write a few words, see if you can draw a picture um, and or think about some stories that come to mind for you. So I'm going to give you three or four minutes to do this. When I say church, you think What? If I were to draw a picture of our church, Christ Church Ronoga, it would look like this. You got a building over here, then you got a building over here, then you got a, you got a building over here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, so words, pictures, stories. I'm not going to make you show your pictures, but I'd love to hear some of the words. So don't be too shy. We're all friends here. Um, when I say church, if we were just playing a word association game, what would be some of the first words that would come to mind for you? Holler them out and I'll repeat them so we got them. Yes. God is present in our church. Absolutely. Good. All right. What else? Community. Okay. How many of you said something like that? Community, relationship, something to that effect. Good, good. Any other words come to mind for you that you can say in church? Body of Christ. Okay. We'll talk about that. Good. One of the uh, most prominent metaphors, one of the most prominent descriptions of the church in the New Testament. Excellent. Uh, what else? Hands and feet of Jesus. I like that. Yeah. Um, taking that body of Christ idea and literally putting hands and feet on it, I guess. Um, 
Good. Yeah. Uh, I love the, uh, the image there and the reality behind the image. What else? Words that came to mind for you. A place for guidance. Do you say Christian? Christians worldwide. Okay, so a place for guidance. We're talking about what we would what we would do when we go to this thing called church. And Christians worldwide, recognizing that this is something that stretches beyond Orinoco or Missouri or America, uh, stretches all across the globe. Anything else? Words that came to mind for you when I say church? Forgiveness and redemption. Excellent. A place where we hear a certain message. Yeah, that's going to be critical. We're gospel people. If we're not gospel people, we're not the church at the end of the day. Good, good. Uh, what about, now this may be a little bit more challenging because if the story's long, obviously this, you're probably not going to yell it because you'd lose your voice. But is there a, a story that came to mind for you that you could briefly summarize? Um, when I say church, do you think of a particular event? Let me do this actually on this one. Why don't you guys turn to one another, spend just, just a couple minutes on this. And if you didn't think of a story, go ahead and think of one. Uh, an event from your past or an event that you can recall um, that comes to mind for you when you think about church. Talk among yourselves, just groups of three or four, just for a second here. What are some stories that you think about when I say church? Okay, so now uh, let's, let's keep talking about the same question. Sorry to cut you off mid-story, those of you who are still in process. What is the church? Um, when I think about the church and I think about some of the stories that it recalls from my own life, um, one of the things I remember is this little rhyme I learned when I was young that was apparently supposed to teach us about the church. Maybe some of you are familiar. Do you know what I'm doing when I do this? Yes, this is the church. This is the steeple. Open up the doors. Out come all the people, right? Like what a horrible thing to teach children. You know what I mean? Like if there's one thing that we probably could go across the room and say, it is that the church is not the building. We tend to be somewhat familiar with the idea that the church in some sense refers to the people. And so I'm not quite sure why we were taught that. I mean, at some level, it's obvious. We call this place a church. Uh, But nonetheless, as I said, I think one of the things that we would all agree on is that the church is the people. And that is biblical. Um, if you look for the word church in, the, uh, in most English Bibles, you'll find it about 75 times. If you include the plural church is, it's about 100 times altogether. And it's always um, a translation of this a Greek word. And I won't do a lot of nerdy Greek word stuff on you, but this Greek word ekklesia is the word that, that we translate church or churches. And the technical term for the study of the church is called ecclesiology. From that ecclesia, the ology is just study of or words about. So ecclesiology, study of the church. Ecclesia is the church, literally means called out ones, a gathering, an assembly. And it indeed never refers to a building. It always refers to people. Matter of fact, I mean, in the early church, they didn't meet in public places called churches for a couple hundred years Early on, they just met in homes, and as the church grew, they began meeting in other buildings that were used for secular purposes at different times. And as the story unfolded, property began to belong to the church, and then we have church buildings, and the rest, I suppose, is history. So the church is not the building, the church is the people, but I figured out a way that our rhyme can survive, by the way. I've heard a new version of this thing, and we need to be aware of it. Okay, this is a building, on top there's a steeple, open up the doors, the church is the people. So we have resurrected this thing. We can still teach our children with our fingers this rhyme that uh, sticks so well. So we know something, that the church isn't the, just isn't the building or isn't just the building, that the church is the people, but we still haven't gotten very far. And for one thing, we, we still are going, like, no matter what I say or anybody says, we're still going to call this place church. We're still going to say, go into the church or go into church. And to be honest with you, I don't have a problem with that. Words are stretchy and they can refer to many different things. And so in some sense, church actually, if we want to be technical, probably means the people gathered together. That there's a sense in which that is us when we're most at our churchiest. And I'm not really interested in trying to pick apart this or that way of using the term. Uh, but as we say, you know, I'm going to church, it's important for us to recognize that if we just think of this place as the building, we're doing something that is not in line with the New Testament. The church is the people. But even once you establish that, like, 
I'm not trying to be mean, but the people are kind of the worst thing about church sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, so we're defining this thing in such a way that it draws, I mean, some of our buildings are actually pretty ugly, but the buildings here are not bad to look at, you know? And some are very, very beautiful. So we're drawing attention away from that which is impressive on the outside and toward that which is not necessarily. I remember one time uh, there's this man named Henry Nowen who um, is, uh, has written a, a number of wonderful books about Christianity and the church and whatnot. And he once said that community, and he was talking about it, in the terms of the church is the place where the person you least want to be around is. (laughs) And I don't know if I'd go that far with church, but there's some sense in which part of what makes church difficult is the fact that it's made up with people, made up of people. As a matter of fact, how many of you have said or heard or amen something like the statement church is messy? Have you ever, have you ever heard that before? If I got up here and said, I mean, let's just be honest, the church is messy. How many of you would be like, yeah, that's kind of true. So the church is messy. And what we mean by that is not there's coffee stains all over the place, although that may be true. What we mean by that is it's full of broken people, like, like me, you know what I mean? And like you. And so we've established right from the outset that the church is the people. But once again, this doesn't take us very far. Where do we go from here? Who are these people that we call the church? If the church is the people, what people make up the church Is it those who are baptized? Is it those who are baptized a certain way? Is it those who are part of a certain denomination? Is it those that are part of no denomination? Is those that are part of a denomination but think about their denomination a particular way? You know what I mean? Is the church all of the people who hear the sermon or is the church all of the people who take communion? What do we mean when we talk about the church and are we only the church when we gather? Are we also the church when we scatter, when we go out from this place? And so in some sense, it's encouraging to say it's the people, but it's only getting us started because there's a lot more questions to be asked. I also want you, though, to be encouraged by the fact that uh, if you find these questions difficult to answer, you're in pretty good company. One of the things that's true about us, as I'm speaking very generally, as a body of Christians, those of us who, and I'm not sure what familiarity or interest you have in these terms, but those of who, roughly speaking, are evangelical Protestants, By Protestant, I mean we're not Catholic, we're not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. And by evangelical, I mean we are those who are centered not in the denomination, even if we're part of a denomination, we're not centered in that, but we're kind of trying to center ourselves in the gospel and in scripture and those kind of things. That whole movement coming out of the Reformation, which has been broad and had many different branches, that whole movement, to be honest with you, has been pretty good about talking about God. It's been pretty good about talking about Jesus. It's been pretty good about talking about the gospel. One of the things that like those of us who went before us weren't really very good at is talking about the church. If you go to a bookstore and you're trying to find some solid resources from what we would call like conservative Christianity, and I mean that in a good way, from conservative Christianity, you're going to find a ton of books on, um, like I said, the gospel, a ton of books on Jesus, a ton of books on prayer. You're going to find now a ton of books on how to do church. You should do church in your homes. You should do church in a building. We should have huge churches. We should have small churches. We should worship like this. We should worship like that. You'll find a ton of stuff on how to do church, but you actually won't find much on what is the church. It's not been a question that we've actually been all that good at answering when it comes to the particular movement that some of us either come from or step into. Why? There's probably a lot of reasons. I'm not trying to be exhaustive, but I can give you three that I just thought of off the top of my head. First of all, um, the, the church, the church was kind of the problem. I don't know how well you know your history, but five, 600 years ago, 500 years ago-ish, a man named Martin Luther looked at the Catholic church of his day and said, you are not preaching the gospel. You are telling people that if they pay enough money, then they can spring their friends who have died out of hell, out of purgatory to get into heaven. You are abusing the gospel. You are telling people that they don't have to only believe the scripture, but they also have to believe whatever the Pope says and whatever the councils say, you are not preaching the New Testament. And he rejected that and he pushed against that. And he said, we're now, ultimately he didn't want to walk away. He wanted the church to be reformed. But when it wasn't going to, he broke and said, we're going to have to start something new We're going to have to hit the refresh button and figure out what we're supposed to be as a people. That's kind of what he did. And so from the beginning of our personal, you know, corporate history, we've had the church as being kind of this problem that we're responding against. And so there's a hesitation to be real specific about what is the church, because what if we define it in such a way that we too missed the point? 
What if we define it in such a way that it excludes people that shouldn't be excluded or includes people that shouldn't be included? So I think there's some historical reasons why uh, we haven't necessarily done a good job at answering this question. But beyond just the historical reasons, let me, again, let me give you two more. I don't need you to remember these. I just want you to think along with me. At some level, it's easier to say what the church isn't than to say what the church is. I mean, I just did it. The church isn't a building. That's really easy to say. But okay, then, the church is the people. What does that mean? That's harder to say. So it's easy for us to say, well, we know we don't want to do that. It's a little bit more complicated to say, but we're going to replace it with this. It's kind of like parenting. We all, when we watch other people parent and we don't have any kids, think, well, I'm not going to do it like that. When I have kids, they're never going to scream in public and da 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 You know, we all do this, right? We're going to have them perfectly in line, and I don't know what they're telling them when they go to bed, but we're going to do the right thing. And then you have your kids, and you're like, oh, crap, it's a little bit harder than I thought. You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying. How, what do I do with these tiny human beings who are crazy? I was talking to my son just the other day, and he's two, mind you, and he, uh, he plays with this kid, Robbie, who lives across the street, and they play together on Mondays. And uh, on Monday night, I was like, hey, buddy, like, what'd you do today? He's like, oh, I hit Robbie. And I'm like, man... You can't, you can't hit your friends, bro. And he's like, why? <laughs> Two years old, why? Because no one's going to want to be your friend. Why? Because people don't like getting hit. <laughs> oh, that's what he said. Same day, my wife and I are talking to each other in the other room, right? And uh, Claire comes in, my daughter who's five, and says, Carson punched me in the nose. Clearly my kid like, likes to hit. So if he hits your kid, I'm sorry. We talked to him, I promise. Um, those of you who don't have kids, just do a better job than the rest of us, you know? So she comes in and she's like, Carson hit me in the nose. And we're like, well, okay, why did he do that? Well, he was hugging me too tightly, so I spit on his face. <laughs> what do you expect him to do? I probably popped him in the nose too. Anyway, all that to say, it's easier to say, well, we're not going to do this than when you actually get there. Oh, like, what are we going to do? And similarly with church, it's easier to say, well, it's not this. But then when we come to the positive part, it is this that's a little bit more difficult. And then lastly, there's just no one singular right way to define the church. I think that's partially intentional. Because if we could come up with one definition, then we, we would probably, knowing us, feel like we can now control this thing. And so I think part of God's brilliance is by telling us just enough, just as much as we need to know, to be faithful. And also, imagine if, you know, in any culture, if, the, if we felt like we had arrived at a full understanding of exactly what the church is, let's, say, let's just say, like we as Americans thought, we figured it out. Then when we send missionaries somebody else, we would try to plant that exact church there, and it would end up, we would be expecting them not only to accept the gospel, to accept certain values of the American way of life that we don't even understand have made it into our view of the church. So do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Instead of allowing the gospel to take its own unique form in that culture. So there's no one right definition. Now, I believe there are some things that can be said. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But part of why it's difficult to define it is because we want one simple thing. I'm going to try to keep the list fairly short, but I'm going to give you probably about a dozen statements. We are and then fill in the blank. Ultimately, the top three are going to be, we are the people of God, we are the body of Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you a few within each of those. But my goal in this, and I understand this is risky because most of us are practical people and we just want to be told, tell me what it is and tell me what to do. But I'm trusting that you're here because you want to reflect well on this. And so I'm going to explain these concepts to you. Absolutely, we're going to talk about some application along the way. But I just want to kind of tell you what the Bible teaches. And then together, let's percolate on that and then ultimately see where it takes us as a group. So talking about the church can be difficult for any number of reasons. Uh, let me give you, let me, the, before I jump into some of what I, the, the, the main point I want to make today, let's keep talking just a little bit longer about what we're coming in with. If we don't start with an awareness of what we're coming in with, uh, what ideas, assumptions we bring to us, then we're probably going to make a, a little bit of a mess of things or we're not going to be able to understand the teachings. So you talked a little bit about what you think of the church. Now I want you to reflect just for a couple moments. And if you don't mind, we'll just kind of do this open style. So um, if you want to think quietly, great. But if something comes to mind, feel free to ho holler it out. Here's the question. Where do, we, where do we get our ideas about church? We've talked about some of what we believe, and if we were to go into more depth, we would certainly nail a, a bunch more up on the wall. But where are some of the places uh, and experiences that we get our ideas about church? From history, From history. yeah. 
Uh, so we look back at history and some of what we believe, whether we realize it or not, is probably rooted in what somebody else did. The fact that you sit, we come and do, when we do church, the fact that we do rows of seats, that started at some point. It's not always been that way. And the fact that we sit in comfortable seats instead of wooden pews, thank you, Lord Jesus, you know what I mean? Like that started at a certain point more recently. The fact that we as a church have a small group system is a result of some historical movements in the early 1980s. So history, both recent and long distant history. Where else are some of the places where we get our ideas about church? Acts, you say Acts? You mean the Bible Acts? Yeah, the book of the, the, the Bible and specifically Acts, this passage of scripture that is designed to, to tell us our story. The book of Acts, if you're, if you're fairly new to the Bible, um, the New Testament is the latter third and it talks about Jesus and his followers. It starts with four stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have the book of Acts, which is volume two written by Luke. And it's the one book in the Bible that tells the story of the early church. Here's what they did. And he tells us that story so that we might know who we are. We're going to talk a lot about Acts in here, for sure. We're even going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira, which I think is one of the most odd and yet instructive stories in the whole New Testament about who we are as a people. Good. So scripture, we get them from scripture, specifically the book of Acts. Where are some other places? Families. Yeah. How many of you growing up have some type of experience of church that is connected to your family? Okay. Yeah. Not all. Some of us grew up and play in homes where church was nothing but a bad joke, uh, and you found yourself in it at a certain point nonetheless. So those are just a few of the places from history, from scripture, from our families, uh, past experiences of all kinds. I think sometimes we and certainly our neighbors and friends get their ideas about church from TV, which is always kind of scary, from the news, you know what I mean? It's typically the churches that we wouldn't want representing us that make their way onto the news. I think sometimes we have our ideas about church and what church should be because of our own personal needs and preferences. We don't even realize we're doing this, but we project our personal preferences onto what it should look like. I like a certain kind of music, therefore the church should do this kind of music. We would never say that, but that's kind of what's happening. I think it's relative, for the most part, uh, uh, well, it's not everywhere, but in many places, a past tension. But do you remember like mid to late 90s into the early aughts. This is the time when I was uh, in, in, uh, growing up and kind of entering junior high, high school on into college. Remember the worship wars when like most churches and some still do, but had like, are we going to do traditional or are we going to do contemporary? Some churches are still having that conversation. And the reality is part of why it's such a difficult conversation is because different communities with the church are saying, well, this is what I like. And if they're not saying that, that's at the end of the day part of what's going on. So you get the point. It comes from all different kind of places. Let me tell you how I can came, to the, came to the conclusions I'll be sharing. Because I wanted to work hard not to just come in here and make this my personal soapbox. Please. I mean, that would just be good for no one. And so I wanted to tell you up front here. I won't talk about this much more. But tell you up front here my process for arriving at the conclusions I have. First thing I did was I just did a quick survey of the New Testament. I, uh, I just flipped through the pages of my New Testament and the passages I was aware of. I kind of looked at and thought about what they said. Those that I know less, I read through. And I just made a list, a bullet list, a couple pages long of all of the different truths about the church that I thought I was seeing in there. Some of them are quite obvious. Some of those are a little bit more subtle. So I just made a list. What are the different things the New Testament teaches us about who we are? Uh, then as I made that list, I started to try to put it together a little bit. But as I was putting it together, that's when I read uh, you know, other books, other theologians, other people from different eras of history, some that are talking about the church today. I did some study beyond the Bible, tried to listen to some wise teachers who talk about the church and to see how they pull all these things together. And so as I was doing this, I was kind of in search of some sort of a grid or a framework to pull it all together so that it's more than just a bunch of disconnected statements. And in the meantime, I was thinking, about my own experience of these things. Because when we talk about the church, we should be talking about something that is at least sort of like what we have experienced if we've spent our lives in church. And in the process of this, eventually I tried to find a way to pull all the pieces of the puzzle together. So that's a little bit of the process for me. And I tell you that so that you know I started with the text. That's where I began. And then I tried to listen to the wisdom of others. And then I've done my best to reflect on this and a lot of my own experience and pull this together in such a way that it makes sense. So... The cobwebs are cleared. We know that we don't know exactly what the church is. Awesome. 
but it's okay because we're just getting started. We know that we know something actually. I should probably say that a little bit more, a little bit more accurately. We know that we know some things about the church, but we also know that we could use a little bit more accurate information. That we should probably take what we think we know and evaluate it in light of scripture, even if it comes through clean. And we should add to that some of what else the Bible teaches that we haven't necessarily thought about. So that is clearing the cobwebs. Now I want to transition us into this next section that I'm calling check the foundations. Um, but uh, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do it just in case. Let me just pause and see if there are any of you that want to ask any questions before I proceed. If nothing else, this gives us a chance to breathe, right? Okay, let's proceed and talk about this next section, check the foundations. Before we progress any further in exploring these questions, we've got to establish one foundational assumption. This is us making sure that the wood we're about to put stuff on is solid. Because if this isn't in place, Honestly, I don't really know what benefit it is to talk about what the church actually is. If this isn't in place, then, and I'm not telling you that if you don't agree with me, you shouldn't keep coming. I want you to keep coming. I hope to convince you of this. But I need you to know what assumption I start with. And simply put in two words, that assumption is that church matters. Church matters. Now, at some level, this is the question that we're going to be asking on the weekends and answering over the course of the next um, uh, few weeks in our Why Church series. But I want to give you a little bit of, of uh, some analysis of our world and some reflection on the scripture to try to establish early on at this point that church matters. I want to talk about this in two ways. I want to suggest that we can actually discern this just by looking at the world around us. I want to talk about what, all, what some, some uh, social critics call our, our era's crisis of community, our world's crisis of community. And then I also want to um, supplement that with what I regard to be the more important material, and that is what the Bible actually teaches. And so let's talk about our world's crisis of community. I want to talk about this uh, in three ways. I want to talk about humanity's need for community. This is just kind of how we're wired as human beings. Then I want to talk a little bit about modernity's breakdown of community. Now, modernity is a word that comes up, a word that comes up in uh, a lot of like worldview studies, if you were with us for our corrective lenses. Essentially, what I mean by that, most simply put, is some of the developments that we've seen over the last 50 to 75 years. That's all I mean by modernity. And then I want to talk about post-modernity's call for community. We're now living in an era, I don't even know if post-modernity is a real thing, but we're living in an era that is not only different from 100 years ago, it's even different from 20 years ago. Um, the other day, my uh, daughter Claire, uh, we have an old phone. It's one of those. Remember when, like, the, remember the razors when they were like the coolest phones ever, and the commercial where they threw them like a like a ninja star and it's stuck in the wall. Anyway, Beth has an old pink razor, and Claire asked her the other day, "Was this your phone when you were a little girl?" <laughs> no, babe, no, it's not exactly how it works. So, uh, I'm going to talk about humanity's need, and then modernity's breakdown, and then post-modernity's call. So, we're going to doing a little bit of cultural anal- cultural analysis here. Uh, starting with humanity's need for community. Now, this is, uh, in this section, I'm not going to do mostly Bible stuff, but this is biblical. I mean, there is a sense in which from the very start of Scripture, we recognize that this is true. And maybe you've heard me or others talk about this before. I hope so. Uh, the first negative word spoken over Scripture is Genesis 2.18. Do you remember what it is? It's not good for the man to be alone. Everything up to that point has been positive. Everything's been good. And then the man, the human being, was very good. And then God looks down and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And I've told some of you the story before, but once I was in a church where um, there was different tiles on the floor of the church, and they had scripture verses on the tiles, like John 3.16, Jeremiah 29.11, Philippians 4.13, kind of here and there. And I, before the service, went in to use the restroom, and I'm standing at the urinal, and I look down, and I see Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. And I think to myself, if there's a place where that does not apply... Like, surely this is it. But nonetheless, um, generally speaking, we know that that's true. Here's, the tr- here's what I, think I, do, I do think is true, though. You don't even need the Bible to get that. You don't, you don't even need Scripture to show you that we need community. Uh, from the start of history up through today, in every place you go, humanity organizes itself in families. Now, families may look different. 
In some subcultures, it's, it's mom, dad, and kids. In other subcultures, it includes the grandparents, cousins, and uncles. Even in our own culture, there are some of your families where you're more closely connected to your extended family. Others where it's just you and a couple people. And I'm not even saying that everybody has positive experiences of family. That's obviously not true. I'm saying we can't get around the fact that family is a big deal to us. Even those of us who may have had some sort of a brokenness experience this as a brokenness. Nobody would say, oh, you're neither, your parents both abandoned you when you were three years old and then you lived with your neighbor. Oh, no big deal. No, like we all recognize, sorry that happened to you. And I didn't even have to be a religious person. We recognize automatically that family matters. And honestly, you can see that in some of our raging debates currently in our culture. Both sides of this question of what should we do morally and legally about the question of homosexual people who join together in unions, these are charged issues for both sides. We'll talk probably some a little about that as we go, not directly, but here and there. The main thing I want to draw out now is this just proves to us family matters. And so we organize ourselves by families. There's also even beyond family, this, this uh, tendency to group up to hang out with other people outside of your family, to create some sort of a friend circle. And it doesn't have to be a friend circle. Maybe it's just a business partnership. Maybe it's just all the painters in the area get together once a month to talk about what they're doing and what needs are present. I don't know what it may be, but you, you, you get that in, in human life, we group up beyond just the families. Um, well, here's another example of, of the importance of community. If, if you do a bad thing, if you do a crime, where do you go? To jail. And if you do a bad thing in jail, if you get punished, if you're getting punished when you're in prison, aside from like death, if you get punished in prison, what is the form of that punishment? Isolation, solitary confinement. So we even recognize as part of our, part of our, part of our uh, uh, penal system, as part of our criminal system, that a punishment would be to put you in a room alone without a bunch of other people. Now, some of you may think to yourself, oh, that would be wonderful for a while, but not forever. You know what I mean? We, we acknowledge that this is, pretty universally speaking, a form of punishment, not a blessing. On the flip side, some studies have been done not too long ago that are interesting in that they show not only is isolation a form of punishment, but community can lead to health. There was a, a, Harvard, a Harvard sociologist, I think he's probably retired now, he may still be there, named Robert Putnam, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Anybody familiar with this book? It's a book analyzing community life in American culture, and he had a lot of interesting findings, but for me, the most interesting parts of his study was what he discovered about the relationship between community, friendship on the one hand, and health and happiness on the other hand. He was researching all these different studies that different universities have, st have done, and one of them, I think this one was either from Vanderbilt or Michigan, I can't remember where from. One study found that people with more relationships, more positive relationships, actually got fewer colds. And what this study argued is that relationships somehow stimulate our immune, our immune system, almost function like a vitamin. Another one that they discovered, and this isn't all that hard to understand, although at some level it's like, wow, really, that's significant. This one revealed that victims of a stroke who had a strong support network functioned better physically after the stroke. So not just surrounded afterwards, but if they, if they, when they had this experience, they had a fairly strong network that was with them before, during, and stayed with them after that they tended to function better. He actually discovered that people who are physically unhealthy but have meaningful relationships on average live longer than people who are physically fit but don't have meaningful relationships. Isn't that interesting? That actually, if you want to live long, your better bet is to not so much worry about what you eat, although that's probably not a bad idea. Obviously, you can eat well and have good friendships. But if you're going to choose one, eat well and exercise or have good friendships, and your goal is to live a long time, having good friendships is actually a more secure bet. That's more likely to get you what it is that you want. Here's a quote from the book. He says, this is a rough rule of thumb. If you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. That's pretty crazy. Anyway, I need to speed up a little bit or I'm not going to get through this stuff. Humanity's need for community. We need one another. I don't think it would take much to argue that to anyone. Uh, we recognize that we may be wired differently, but even the introverts among us need one another. Um, secondly, modernity's breakdown of community. I don't need to say much here. I just want to point to two things. The rise of technology both connects and separates us. Connects us in that you can stay close to friends and family who live in other parts of the world more easily than ever before. Just get on Facebook. But it separates us because to get on Facebook and hang out with those people or check up on them, you have to not hang out with the people who are actually in your own home. You know what I mean? 
And the tendency, I think, on average is probably people do more neglecting of the people around them because of social media than they do otherwise. Even apart from social media, technology in general. How many of you could be perfectly content if you had a day to do whatever, spending multiple hours by yourself on some sort of device? Actually, not many of you. Okay, that's a good thing, actually, because I don't think that represents the norm. So the rise in technology tends to, at some level, pull us apart from one another. Uh, At the very least, in ancient times, people were more tied to their community because, and I don't just mean like computers and, and, and iPads. Let me back up when I say technology and acknowledge, like you can get on an airplane and fly anywhere in the world very quickly. That wasn't always the case. And so if you wanted to do something for fun, you were probably going to do it more locally, in which case you would engage the people around you. So technology made travel more efficient and easy, and as a result, communities become somewhat destabilized, and we become less connected to our neighborhoods. I would imagine that if you were to survey our grandparents and great-grandparents and compare them to us, they would know more of their neighbors' names than we do. Now, some of us know some of our neighbors' names. Some of us know all of our neighbors' names. But on average, I think that you have more interaction around the neighborhood 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago than you do today. In addition to the technological advances, you have the replacing of tradition with the self. In the past, when people wanted to know how to live, they looked toward toward tradition. Somebody's going to tell me how to live. The church is going to tell me how to live, or my country's going to tell me how to live, or my family's going to tell me how to live. The tendency now, and I'll break this history down in a little bit more detail as we go probably in the next couple of weeks, the tendency now is to instead look to ourselves. Individual reason is the way I arrive at truth. Individual liberty is the foundational ideal. Individual choice is the basic reality. And even if we would say, yeah, I'd rather be able to choose my own path in life. I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that notice what has resulted from that is you have something of a breakdown in community. You have something of a breakdown in relationships. Just think about what it's done to marriage. Uh, Anthony Giddens in a book called Modernity and Social Identity talks about how marriage in our world has become what he calls a pure relationship. And he doesn't mean like people are sexually pure. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying it exists only for itself. In the past, you got married because you had to get married to make life work. It takes two people and a bunch of kids to run a farm or whatever it may be. So marriage was functional. It was designed to serve society and you had to rely on each other for all sorts of ways. And so you marry in order to do life well. Now, most people are capable, or at least they think they're capable or potentially capable of living autonomously on their own. So why would you get married? Well, to make somebody happy. And so now the purpose of marriage is no longer stabilize society and establish a decent living, but instead it is, I'm going to make them happy and they're going to make me happy. Talk about pressure. No wonder the divorce rate is higher than it's been. So notice how some of these changes have resulted in the breakdown of community. And as a result, uh, we and those who are younger than us are calling for community. One of the most consistent values that you'll find in our world today is that of community. This is why we have a blowing, an explosion, a blowing up of support groups. So many more support group options than there were 20, 30, 40 years ago. This is why Facebook is a thing because ultimately it is a way people stay connected to one another. This is why, um, this is ultimately why we still come to church and do these different kinds of things. And what has happened in our world is people have lost faith in the government. A lot of people have lost faith in the church and people have generally speaking kind of lost faith in God. They don't really know what to do with God, and so we can't necessarily be relied on. Community, hanging out. So we recognize when we look at our world that community matters, that we're calling out for something. But now what I want to do is the most important part, and that's talk through some different portions of Scripture that indicate that the same is indeed the case. Community matters. What I want to talk about now is the Bible's vision of communal faith. What I want to suggest to you is that in the Bible, there is no discipleship apart from the church. I want to say that again and just kind of let it linger a little bit. There is no discipleship apart from the church. There's no following Jesus apart from doing life together. How could I say such a thing? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Who are some main characters of the Bible? Holler them out to me. Paul, okay, keep going. Moses, who else? What's that? Je- this is, yes, Jesus, indeed. That's the right answer. It is. 
What else? Peter, okay. Think Old Testament too. Let's get some. We've got Peter and Paul, Jesus. We've got Moses. Who else in the Old Testament? Abraham. Somebody said God, indeed. Yeah, we'll come to that. Yeah. David, Joseph. Think about the fact that all of these characters that we mentioned, while they're certainly individual people, only make sense in relationship to the group. So Abraham was called by God. And what does God say to him? I will make you a family. I'll make you a great nation. And through your nation, I'm going to bless all the other nations. Moses. What does God tell Moses to do? Go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then Moses becomes the leader of the people of Israel. Joseph. Is Joseph, in in the book of Genesis, Joseph is a part of what? A family. He's one of the many sons of Jacob, who are the sons of Isaac, who are the sons of Abraham, who are destined to be the ones through whom God blesses the rest of the world. David is the what? What's his role? He's the king of Israel. You move on to the New Testament. We'll talk about Jesus here in a second. You move on to the New Testament, and you have... um, You have Paul, who's an apostle to the Gentiles. You have Peter, who's one of the 12. Consistently, all throughout Scripture, every main character at some level is connected to the community of faith. Even God. You said it. God's the main character of their Bible. And we believe that ultimately God is what? A trinity. Three in one. So in some sense, community, relationship is at the very foundation of reality because it's the foundation of God. So the main characters in the Bible obviously don't make sense on their own. Also, if you back up and look at the entire storyline of Scripture, the whole thing suggests that God is in search of a people, not just persons. He wants Adam and Eve together to produce a family. Again, he wants to work through those that come after Abraham, his descendants, his family. He wants to work through Moses and the people. And you carry on the story forward. What you're going to notice is that all the way through, we're dealing with the people. And then it functions, it kind of centers itself in Jesus. So now you have one man. Maybe this is our ticket to individualism. Maybe because Jesus stands at the center and he's the only one who can do what he can do. That here we have our understanding that now it's about only a personal relationship and that the community isn't as important. But it doesn't work that simply because what did Jesus say when he was asked what the greatest commandment was? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then all by his own, he just volunteered this additional information and love your, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody asked him what the first two great commandments were. All they said was, what is the first? And he gave him the first. And then he said, if you want to really understand how the first works, you also have to understand the second. Love God, love people. And it wasn't just in a general sense either. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives his disciples specific instructions for what to do when somebody within, that's one of the few times you find the word church on the lips of Jesus. When somebody in a church is doing wrong to somebody else, here's how you handle it. A love that Jesus gives us one of the most practical things we need. Conflict resolution plans. Jesus too talked about the church. So the main characters in the Bible only make sense in relationship to one another. The storyline of Scripture suggests to us that, 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 that the community of faith is a critical part of what it is we're doing. And then you also have to ask the question, how many one another's do you, do you see in the New Testament? And but I, what I mean by one another's is when the Bible says, you know, blank one another. Just from memory, what are some one another statements that you can recall having seen in Scripture in the past? Love one another. What else? Serve one another. Anything else? Forgive. What'd you say? Be kind. Okay. What else? Carry one another. What'd you say? Pray for one another. Yeah, there are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. That's a lot. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's an indication to us that we can't do this thing alone. So I would argue from culture and from scripture that church matters. Now, what difference does that make for how we practice our faith? I think I can explain it to you fairly well, and I think I can do so by using game shows as an example. I want to talk about what I consider to be the differences between what I'll call one-dimensional relationship with God, a two-dimensional relationship, and a three-dimensional relationship with God. A one-dimensional relationship with God is where it's just about me. And this isn't really Christianity, although some people try to act like it is. And this would be the type of community that you see in the show Survivor. Does anybody still watch Survivor? None of you? Like me and you and you. We love Survivor still. So anybody familiar, if the rest of you are familiar with what the game Survivor is all about, you put a bunch of people on an island, it's all about being the one who survives till the end, so you vote each other off. Now what's interesting is that community does play a role in this. It plays this, it's this thing that they call alliances. You're going to form alliances with other people. But the alliances are not real friendships. 
because everybody knows you get in an alliance until it stops serving your purposes and then you break the alliance so that you can further yourself in the game. This is not real community. This is what I would consider to be like me only spirituality. It's just about me tapping into my inner self and ultimately other people just kind of get in the way. Nobody really thinks that's Christianity and yet it is a version of trying to be spiritual I think is fairly present in our own day. Two-dimensional spirituality is more what I think you see in most of our churches. And this is a form of community where people are beneficial. They help me and I help them. But ultimately, we're trying to do something solo. So we're here for each other, but we're here helping each other do our solo thing. Uh, this, uh, the, the game show that comes to mind for me, and I'm going to have to find a new one soon because this one isn't on the air anymore, but it was a really great show. Any of you ever seen by chance a game show called Cash Cab? It's a fun show. It was gone now. Here's what happens. I think it's in New York, and there's this guy who drives a taxi cab, and from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily know it's any different, but you get inside the cab, and then the lights go off, and it's like, you're in cash cab. And the way the game works is, uh, between where you get picked up and wherever you're going, the driver is going to ask you a series of questions. Questions like, it's like trivia type stuff, Jeopardy type questions, those sorts of things. I think there's multiple choice. And you get asked the question, and for every question you get right, you get $100. And you get three strikes. And if you strike, if you, if you get three strikes before you get to your destination, you don't get any money, you get kicked out of the car. But if you answer all the questions correctly up to wherever you're going, then you get however much money you earn. It's a fun little game to watch, right? And the place where community comes in is this thing called shout outs. Uh, you can go open your window and, and you know, get a hold of somebody on the street to try to help you with the question. I believe you can phone someone as a shout out, that kind of thing. Now think about this. This is genuine community. I mean, I wouldn't call it like intimacy or super closeness, but ultimately if I'm playing cash cab and I see you and I open the window and I'm like, hey, you know, who was Napoleon's greatest enemy or something like that? And you know, you're not going to withhold the information from me because it's not like you win by me losing if you know you're going to tell me. So there's a sense in which we're here to help each other, but ultimately it's my game. I'm trying to win. And if you were playing, you'd be trying to win. That's how most of us approach the Christian life. Yeah, we need each other, but ultimately I need them to help me play my game and they probably need me to help them play their game. We still are viewing the Christian life as an individual pursuit of perfection and that is not what I believe it is. I believe that the Christian life, and this is a straight quote from one of my professors named Jim Johnson, a good friend of mine, he says, the Christian life is not an, in, it's not an individual pursuit of perfection but a shared journey together as we walk the way of Jesus. That's the Christian life. And that's what I would call three-dimensional spirituality. And the game show that comes to mind for me is the game Amazing Race. We've all seen Amazing Race. It's still going strong. And the thing that I want to draw out about Amazing Race is simply this. There's just one piece of the show that I want to make an analogy with. And that is that if you cross the finish line alone, you have not won the game. There's no way to win this game alone. You and your teammate have to cross together. And the nature of Amazing Race is such that it is only one in community. Granted, there's only two people there, but you get the point. It is only one together. The purpose of this is to accomplish something together. And I would suggest to you that that is the nature of the church. When you see in Ephesians 4, one of Mark's favorite texts, and I love this is one of his favorite texts, where it talks about God giving different types of people and gifting different types of people so that the body of Christ may be built up and to, together in the knowledge of the Son become like Jesus. What I want you to notice there is that it's together that we're called to become like Jesus, which is good news for all of us because none of us can become like him on our own. I remember one time when I was standing, this was at a graduation ceremony when I was in college, I think I was a sophomore, and there was a guy, this guy a couple years older than me, and he was standing up in front of me a couple rows, and I was just watching him interact with people. Nicest guy in the world. So nice, it just makes you sick. You know what I mean? Like, you ever know some of those people? And I remember looking at him going, man, like, the sanctification process could keep going forever. Like, the Holy Spirit could totally take over my life, and I'm never going to be as kind as him. It's just not going to happen. And in that moment, it was a little bit of kind of a stressful thing for me. Like, what am I even trying to do, you know? But ultimately, it became an encouraging moment because I realized it's not on me to be perfect. It's not on me to be the one person that everybody can look at and say, that's exactly what Jesus is like. It's on me to play my part in us together showing the world what Jesus was like. So the pressure's off. You don't have to be Jesus all on your own. But at some level, the responsibility is on for us to play our part in doing that together. 
So I would suggest to you that if we want to have a biblical faith, then we have to have what I'm characterizing in this particular case as a three-dimensional spirituality. This idea that I have a personal relationship with God, no question. I have a personal friendship with Jesus. He's my big brother. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my best friend. Jesus is meaningful to me, and I do have a personal relationship with him, but it is not in isolation from the relationship we have with him together. That is ultimate. And then my relationship with him and your relationship with him comes underneath that. That's how I think we should approach our faith, that it is only something that we can accomplish together. The tasks that he has given us are communal in nature, irreducibly so. So, that is me trying to lay a foundation. I think that what we're talking about matters because I believe that the church matters. I know full well that the church can be ugly. I know full well that the people who are supposed to be the most trustworthy can be the ones that sometimes you can least rely on to understand the gospel. I have gone through seasons of my life where I wanted nothing to do with the church, even while I worked for her. I'll talk about this a little bit here in a couple weeks on Sunday, but I remember there were seasons when every time I went to Barnes & Noble, I'd think to myself, man, are they hiring and how much do they pay? Because I want to work here. You know what I mean? I'd rather hang out with books than these people. I get it. And so I'm not saying I love the church because I've only had flowery experiences in the church. To be honest, I don't like singing and I'm not particularly good at listening to other people talk, which is very ironic, I realize. I'm not really good at church, but I do it because I believe that church matters. And that's ultimately why it's never gonna be a struggle for me to come share with you because I think that what we're talking about is important. So let me wrap up by clarifying the plan. This part won't take long. I just wanna tell you where it is that we're going. What are we doing time-wise? 743, we're doing okay time-wise. Here's our basic plan. And it's based on a quotation from a guy named Craig Van Gelder who wrote a book called The Essence of the Church. We're going to break up our time into three segments which come from his quote. Here's what he says. He says, the church is... The church does what it is. The church organizes what it does. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to spend about four weeks talking about what the church is. This is where we're doing a theology of church. I'm just going to teach you what I think scripture says. There's going to be times when we get practical, but for the most part, we're going to leave it up here at the bird's eye view because we're trying to define, okay, Looking at this broadly, what is the church? This is kind of our theory section, which for some of you is awesome. As Mark would say, it makes your tail wag. For others of you, that's my favorite Mark Christianism, by the way. It really makes my tail wag. I just, always, I just like it when he says that. I think it's just hilarious and cute for an old bald guy. And it's not old, a young bald guy to say. It really makes my tail wag. Anyway, I don't even know if he's in the room, but if he is, I wonder what he's thinking right now. So the church is, then the church does what it is. Notice that. We're going to get to the practical of what we do, but we can't, do, we can't answer that question well until we've answered what the church is. So the church is, the church does what it is, and then the church organizes what it does. So we'll talk about the structures that are necessary to make sense of doing this together. I want to draw the, wet, the, the, wet, the net wide enough so that we challenge our thinking, and yet at the same time, I want to draw it tight enough that we make a practical difference. We can't say everything in here, and I can guarantee you that I won't say everything perfectly. And if you, if you want to tell me to slow down, you don't have to feel bad about doing so. I'm constantly trying and typically failing. So I'll try to slow down, and I'll try to tell you the truth, and I'll try to tell it well, and I'll try to say at the end of the day, recognizing that nothing will be perfect, I want us to be able to look back on this experience together and say, you know what, that's enabled us to serve the church well. That's my goal. So with that in mind, here's an outline of the class. What the church is, we're going to talk about how the church, uh, we are the people of God, we are the body of Christ, we are the temple of the spirit, and then we're going to draw it together in a transitional teaching on we are the icon of our triune God. Then we're going to talk about what the church does. Big picture, we fight evil by following Jesus, but here's what that means. We worship God alone, we build one another up, and we witness to the world. And then we're going to talk about how the church organizes. After making a few comments about the nature of the church as both universal and local, we're going to talk about how the church is gathered and scattered. And man, we have to have both. We're going to talk about leadership systems that God has put in place to lead the church well. And then we're going to discuss the idea of covenant membership, which is our particular commitment to partnering with the church in doing what it is we're called to do.
I know I need to let you go, and I know I prayed up front, but I also want to pray once more and just ask God's blessing on our time together. So I'm going to leave just a couple of moments of silence, and I'd like to ask you to do the same. Just in whatever way you know how, there's no perfect way to do this, in whatever way you know how, ask God to bless our time together, and then after a moment of silence, I'll pray, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Father God, I want to thank you once more for this opportunity to uh, meet together and to talk about what it means to be a people who meet together in the name of Jesus. And uh, we pray that you would bless our time, and we certainly pray that, um, that this would fit in with all of the many other things that you're doing in our lives to take us from where we currently are to where you would have us go and who you would have us become. Uh, We are grateful for the opportunity. I ask, Lord, that you bless the commitment and effort of the people who are coming here because they want to learn. I ask that you bless that and that you uh, honor their decision to make themselves available for you to teach them. I pray, God, that we could have a little bit of fun along the way. And most importantly, we pray that whatever we talk about here would enable us to glorify your name uh, by serving your kingdom and building up your church. Ultimately, it's in Jesus' name that we gather. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. See you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.